It's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. EPA? EPA, there you go. No, again. Let's talk, let's talk deposition. Seriously? Is EPA the one you were talking about? Or no, sir. You that. can't name the third one? The third agency of government, yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 44 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill, less extreme, and generally less angry conversation. You know, there's a school of thought that the campaign for president really starts when the first debates for the out party happen. That day has arrived for campaign 2024. Tonight is the first debate. It's a lot of people. I think it's eight to be precise. In case you don't have the lineup in front of you, it's Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. I'm going to say it that way from now on since that song. Vivek Ramaswamy. Former Vice President Mike Pence, ex-Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, North Carolina Governor Doug Burgum, and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison. I think that's all of them. And it's happening in an important state, and it comes on the heels of a very influential poll in the first state to vote, the state of Iowa. So we're going to do a couple of things here. We're going to do the state of play in Wisconsin and the other swing states, a little bit of an update on what we learned about Iowa, and then we're going to preview the debate. First, a bit about Wisconsin. Wisconsin obviously is a legit battleground state. Four of the past six presidential elections have been decided by less than one percentage point. Donald Trump won it narrowly in 2016, 2016, before losing by a similar margin in 2020. Wisconsin will be, I guess, the the biggest toss-up in the general election. Maybe Pennsylvania's a little bigger. It's a distinction held by a, sw- a shrinking but often shifting number of places, as some former swing states like Ohio and Florida have become more reliably Republican, and states like Virginia and Colorado have now become Democratic. That really leaves Wisconsin along with Georgia Arizona, Pennsylvania, and I guess Nevada as among the most competitive states, and those states are going to decide the presidency. In 2000, Al Gore carried Wisconsin by only 5,700 votes, 0.22%. And that makes Biden win in 2020 look nearly astronomical. He won by 21,000 votes, or 0.56% made Biden look like he blew him out. But the two other races, John Kerry, 0.3.8% margin in 2000. For Trump's 0.77% win in 2016. These are all just to give you an idea how razor close all these races were. And Democrats have been able to chip away a little bit at the Milwaukee suburbs. And they all of those places, these kind of suburban educated voters are similar to the rest of the country where Republican support dropped during the Trump era. And Democrats have also capitalized on gains in Dane County. That's where Madison is, the University of Wisconsin. And Democrats have done well statewide. 14 of the past 17 statewide elections, including Biden in 2020, Governor Tony Evers won in 2022, and Janet Protewicz in April. Her victory in the Supreme Court race there took majority control of the court away from conservatives for the first time in 15 years. And there's lots on the horizon there for the Supreme Court. Abortion access, restricting, uh, uh, redistricting, and voting rules. I did a podcast just about Wisconsin a couple of months ago. In a sign of Wisconsin's importance, not just because the Republicans are having their debate there, but, but Biden traveled there last week. 
uh, to Milwaukee. And on Sunday, this past Sunday, his campaign announced that they're spending $25 million to run ads in seven states, including Wisconsin. So as they try to counter the programming the Republicans are doing with their debate. But perhaps the most interesting thing about Wisconsin is that is providing further evidence that election denial and efforts to overturn the election is particularly unpopular in states where Trump tried to do it. Just as in Georgia, where the top Republicans have become way more popular in their states as more information's come out, that they stood up to Donald Trump, a member of their own party, the same trend seems to be holding true in the cheese state I have written down here. I didn't even know if that's what they're called. Just as in Georgia, and you know, Wisconsin Republicans are more and more divided on Trump than the past two times that he ran. Trump's refusal to accept uh, defeat in 2020 and his lies about the outcome in Wisconsin and calls to decertify the results have alienated him from the top Republicans, not just the Democrats. I mean, Trump was favored by, in a recent poll, and this is now, keep in mind, this is before the last two indictments and before DeSantis started to nosedive. But on June 29th, they did a poll in the last big one in Wisconsin. And Trump had 31%, DeSantis 30. It was basically tied. And in a head-to-head matchup where they took out the other candidates, DeSantis was favored by a lot, 57 to 41. And as I said, take that with a grain of salt because there's been a big flipping that's going on the last couple of months. But it is an important and kind of underrelated element of all these legal cases. Voters in the states we keep reading about, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, the the evidence is that voters in those states don't like what they have learned from all these indictments. They don't like what they have learned about the election denial. And it really shouldn't surprise anyone. People don't like that their votes are being overturned, even if it's in favor of their own team. They don't like the idea of outsiders coming in and kind of flipping the results of a democratically cast election. And so that's a little bit about the host for tonight's debate. Next, let's talk about another important state, the state of Iowa. The first primary voters will weigh in on the nomination in the form of a caucus. That's going to happen on January 15th. And then starting in February, there's a whole bunch of states that follow. And an important caveat about Iowa, it tends to winnow the field, but it often doesn't choose the winner. I'll give you some examples from the Republican side. In 2008, a fellow named Mike Huckabee won the state on his way to his career now of being the sixth most famous hawker of gold coins on Newsmax or whatever he's up to nowadays. In 2012, a guy named Rick Santorum won the caucus and would go on later in his career to be the guy known for equating homosexuality with man-on-dog sex. That's his claim to fame in Wikipedia. And in 2016, Ted Cruz won Iowa. And what has he gone on to a career being, I don't know, the Senate's biggest douche. But it is a place where four or five candidates will end their campaign, probably. And that's why the debate is so important. And that's why we care about Iowa. But an important poll just came out in Iowa. And you know, I like polls. I talk about them a lot. I don't like all pollsters. Polls, like any other form of research, can be rigorous. They can be well-designed or not. In most cases nowadays, you can look at things like the design of the questions, the sample size, and perhaps most importantly, how the respondents were selected and draw conclusions about how much credence to put in that poll. The Des Moines Register poll of its caucus goers is an excellent poll. It's conducted by a woman named Ann Selzer. Her stock and trade is figuring out who is really going to caucus, and she's very good at it. Remember, if you're polling a universe of just registered voters, you might learn a little something, but you really want to know who's actually going to show up to vote to be able to determine what the results might be or also to understand the audience that's really going to impact the outcome. So if you look at what she's good at, She's good because, or the proof is that polls that she conducts closer to the caucus turn out to be very close to the outcome of the results. I remember when Hillary Clinton ran in 2008 and she was running in third in their poll that came out, I think the Saturday, you know, the week before, the three or four days before the poll, you know, 
there was this big debate back and forth between her pollsters and the Des Moines Register about whether it was BS or not. And it turned out to be right on, right on point. So although the poll came out Monday, is only 406 respondents. Um, she called that for more than 2,000 contacts to get a real read on the actual people who will be making their decision on caucus night. And so how is that done? Well, she'll ask a series of screening questions. You know, uh, some of it they'll be able to tell based on their voter history file, but some of it is based on questions that she asked. Anyway, putting aside the methodology, the top line result, the top line number, and a lot of the numbers beneath it show that Trump is way ahead, 42 to 19 over DeSantis. And the others, starting with Scott, are between 4 and 9%. I say they should be kind of bunched in, tied for third, because the margin of error of the poll is 4.9%. So let's say they're all basically tied. And that's people like Scott and Haley and I think Pence might be in that group. But here's the thing about Iowa, and I've seen this firsthand. They take this stuff, they being the caucus goers, take this stuff very seriously. They want to be wooed and they like the winnowing that they're supposed to be doing. And be careful with all the talk of this being way too early to take polls seriously. It's early for you and me. But for residents of Iowa, they have been seeing the candidates. They've been seeing their mail, the TV commercials now for months. So here are the results. 63% say that Trump is either one or two in their book or are actively considering him. 63%. DeSantis is close behind in 61%. And 55% of the respondents say they are considering four or more candidates. Now, I don't know if this is just caucus goers performing at being open-minded and serious or, or, you know, whether they really are considering that many candidates. But if you were DeSantis, it seems like an opening. But for me, the most important question in the poll was this one. I'm going to read the exact wording of it. As you think about which candidate to support, do you think it's most important to find a candidate who comes closest to your own views on issues, or is it most important to pick a candidate who has the best chance of defeating Joe Biden? You want to guess what people said? 65% said it's who is closest to their own views, and only 29% say the best chance to beat Biden. Quite different than it is on the Democratic side, where we're so animated to beat Trump. Keep that stat in mind as we look at tonight's debate. Now, I'm going to go candidate by candidate a little later and say a little something about them, but all of them are in one way or another going to need to make the argument that the audience of Republicans should care more about beating Biden. Isn't that the only real argument they have that Trump can't win? They know their base likes Trump and likes his policies and everything else. It's the fact that Trump is not electable. But consider the box these candidates are in. For one, they and their enablers on Fox News and Newsmax and these other places have been painting such a one-sided story about Biden that it is inconceivable to their listeners, to their readers, and to their viewers that Biden could uh, win re-election. Daily gaff reels, almost daily blockbusters about Hunter Biden and the billions in bribes Joe has gotten, immigration, inflation. It's a bubble that is having the effect of making the Republican base believe that anyone who is upright and breathing can beat Biden. So electability seems to be a less serious consideration to these voters because they assume everyone's electable. Second, there is the effect of all the election denial. They think he already won once. Usually candidates who start will will start their pitches, why we lost last time. But these guys have to be careful. They can't even say that without running into the teeth of a lot of their base who don't think they lost last time. So what are they to do with their time tonight in the debate? The first question or two will be some variant of, How do you beat Trump or why are you better than Trump? That's invariable. You may get one or two of the minor candidates who say Trump lost and if we nominate again, we'll lose again. And I guess Chris Christie is in this candidate, is in this group. And yes, I consider him a minor candidate. He's going to be the loudest spokesman for the smallest sliver of the Republican base, the people who think that 
that not only is Donald Trump a complete phony and a fraud and a, and, and guilty of what he's done, um, but he shouldn't be voted. That's a small base. Chris Christie is the tallest pygmy. But the others are going to continue to do what they have been doing, a dance of kind of kicking the can and trying not to be confrontational with Trump, and in no small measure, keeping the option open of them running as Trump's VP. This seems to be the Nikki Haley and Tim Scott play. One thing you may see is counterintuitive, is they may try to build up Biden. If you want to make the case that there's a danger of former years of Biden, you have to make them realize that that, that outcome is likely as of right now. I bet you might see a lot of people saying things like the leftist media is succeeding in propping up Biden. His party is united. The polls say he will win. They have to do this because this is a two-parter. You should be afraid of losing and Trump is a ticket to losing. But I think both Trump critics and those suck-up VP candidate wannabes will agree on one tactic, and that's attacking DeSantis. DeSantis has given the field some fodder for this with his ham-handed hit on MAGAs in Congress that sounded a lot like he was doing a reprise of Hillary's baskets of deplorables. Hitting DeSantis is not only aiming at a candidate ahead of the others, but it might be seen by Donald Trump as a path to his VP shortlist by roughing up his, I guess, his real nemesis in the race. DeSantis seems to have problems of his own affirmative message also. His two campaign pillars have both crumbled. His popularity around his handling of COVID and his obsession with wiping out the wiping out the woke something or other. In the case of COVID, DeSantis seems to be a victim of, I guess you call it Winston Churchill syndrome. Sometimes issues that made you famous become less important to voters. Rudy Giuliani learned that in 2008 when crime and 9-11 were simply not animating issues anymore. But there's another problem, and I pointed this out on the middle this past Saturday. There's this great profile in The New Yorker of Ron DeSantis. And one of the things that they pointed out was that his team had polled messages to try to see what worked. And they found that 70% of Republicans say that the COVID lockdowns of 2020 were bad ideas. But then when they rephrased the question as Trump's COVID lockdowns, 70% thought they were a great idea. (laughs) This is the problem, that if you're Ron DeSantis positioning yourself as almost anything, once it becomes anti-Trump, it seems that the support crumbles. Now, the woke thing was doomed almost from the jump. You can go back and listen to episode 22 of this podcast way back in March. It was all about the miscalculation, I believe, that was being made by the governor that killed woke was going to be such a winning position. As much as it may have provided outrage content for Fox News, it failed in a fundamental way that so many issues do. Folks just don't see how it connects with the real problems that they have. Shooting a can of Bud Light in a TV commercial or banning a book from a library in Sarasota may be good and all, but it doesn't move votes, and nor should it. So DeSantis has to retool. Being attacked tonight will be good. It says to viewers that he is winning and also gives him more time to say words. When you have eight people on stage, that's not a small consideration. Other things to look for in the debate is this modern thing that has become routine in big fields. Each candidate is asked a personalized gotcha question. Uh, Vivek will be asked about his 9-11 truther stuff and his lack of support for Israel, probably. Christie about his embrace of Obama or maybe his own experience being an unindicted co-conspirator in the Close the Bridges scandal. Nikki Haley on her flip-flops about her old boss. I'm never, we'd never run against Donald Trump to now. Uh, he's unfit to be in office to now she's running herself. You'll also hear a lot of references in explaining these things like, oh, the legacy media wants you to believe. It seems that, by the way, this notion of legacy media is the new way they do it now because they don't want to insult Fox by saying mainstream media or by being, because 
the establishment media, because of course Fox is those things. So legacy media is what they'll be doing. And I wonder if this whole GOP loyalty pledge will come up in some form. John Dickerson of CBS summarized this through the looking glass kind of thing about the about this pledge they had to take. Here's what he said. He said, you must sign a loyalty pledge to enter the debate that promises you will support the party nominee, even if that ends up being the person who skips the debate, in part because they would never make a promise to support the nominee. So do they ask a question like, do you pledge to support Trump if he wins, even though he won't pledge to support anyone if he doesn't? I don't know. Finally, we should get at least a glance at the direction of the real issues that may come up. And what, if anything, we're going to learn from those candidates. I think... There are only a couple of issues that are going to provide any real substantial daylight. The biggest will come on foreign policy, especially Ukraine, NATO, the military. There is this institutional slash normal wing of the party versus the Putin wing of the party. Some like Pence are actually criticizing Biden from the right for saying he's not giving enough military aid, a traditional Republican position. And then there will probably be someone who comes from the Putin wing tonight. It seems like Vivek Ramaswamy seems to be pursuing the conspiracy theorist groups as much as he can. That might be interesting. There's a chance that immigration will produce an interesting answer, too. Obviously, we'll get a lot of open borders and bombing Mexico and crazy red meat, stuff like that. But I'll be watching for the moderators or maybe one of the candidates who might really want to talk seriously about this problem. This isn't going to be a great room for deep thoughts, but I wonder if there will be anyone who seems to be seriously interested in a real question on how to deal with what is really a global problem. Oh, and by the way, if you are playing a drinking game and you have Hunter Biden on your bingo card... Please appoint a designated driver. You're going to be drinking a lot. And speaking of Hunter Biden, hold your seats. We'll be right back with Ask Anthony. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. So welcome back to Ask Anthony or Ask Anthony Anything. So I'm going to be completely transparent about this, and I've said this a few times before. I don't know where the audience lies on all things Hunter Biden. There are people who read it pretty carefully and a while ago with great deal of good reason have kind of treated this like a BS story. And then there are others who simply can't get enough There is an email I got. I want to read the email address. I think his name is Lamar. And I want to remind you, if you're going to submit stuff at Wiener, uh, W-A-B-C at gmail.com to please include uh, at least the first name. So I can, because sometimes I can't figure it out from, I think this person's name is Lamar. And uh, his email, I basically says um, it's, you know, recently the show, the middle has gone to two hours. And he says, I under, he gives a few curse words in here. So I'm going to edit a little bit. I understand why you're talking more about Trump recently, more ways to divert attention from Hunter Biden bribe scandal. So that's a summary of what, you know, I get calls like that from time to time on the radio show. I get a few emails about that. It's a little bit ridiculous, you know, because you can pretty much line up any, any, um, anything that happens in the world right now with some date on the, on the Donald Trump trial calendar without it being any kind of a conspiracy. But another thing that he says uh, that wasn't this letter was another one that says, you know, the special treatment that Hunter Biden is getting in his case. And I have come to the place now 
that um, that I kind of believe we should start having a conversation about the special treatment that Hunter Biden is getting that is worse than anyone has ever gotten in the in the terms of a case, or maybe that's exaggerated, but how he's really gotten a very bad deal. You know, he has obviously been subjected to the indignity of having his laptop become public. That's bad enough, and frankly, something I don't wish on anyone in this audience. But as the U.S. attorney, a Republican U.S. attorney, as I've said, appointed by Trump, and when he was when he was given this case, Donald Trump said loudly, remember, Donald Trump was the president of the White House when the Hunter Biden case began, said, we're going to get this, get to the bottom of the Hunter Biden crimes and everything else. He's now been Five years later, this investigation has been going on. And while, as I've said a hundred times before, while there's some tawdry things on on trading in his dad's name, the crimes that have been found are not paying his taxes and lying on a gun application. And he had worked out a deal with the government um, that would have pled guilty to two misdemeanors, not paying your taxes, paying back your taxes. And then there would have been a diversion agreement, meaning that if he complies with certain rules, takes drug tests, things like that, he won't be punished um, for the for the gun charge. And when he went in, in 99.99% of these cases, everything about the plea deal is basically rubber stamped by the judge. But in this case, he appears before a Republican-appointed judge who wanted to get involved. And so she asked some questions, which are perfectly permitted, but then unravels the deal that had been made for the oddest reason. And it is because in the agreement, the parties, the prosecutor and Hunter Biden's lawyers, agree that the conditions of the of the gun um, diversion deal would be supervised by the court, meaning that if he, he had to take drug tests, he had to comply with certain rules. And the Hunter Biden people legitimately said, I don't frankly trust the government to do this in a potentially Donald Trump government. And so you, the judge, will be in charge of doing it. That happens all the time. When when I was on probation, for example, for my crimes, um, if there were any violations, the probation department would go to the judge and report the violations. It's not uncommon. Yet this judge made a whole to-do, oh my goodness, the separation of, the, of powers, this hard thing never happened. It's a very, very common thing, and the whole deal winds up breaking down over that, over the idea that that Hunter Biden legitimately feels that if this case is still kicking around in any form during the Donald Trump years, that Donald Trump and his Justice Department cannot be trusted to carry out the law impartially. Donald Trump has said, I'm going to throw the Bidens in jail if I get elected. He said those things. So when people say, oh, Hunter Biden has really gotten it easy, you can make a pretty good argument that Hunter Biden has been dealt with in a way that's extraordinarily punitive. And now you've got members of Congress making up stories and pulling documents and everything else. One final thing about this, this thing, all this means now that this case has been thrown out and that there's a special prosecutor has been named is we'll probably have a trial now. And you can't blame Hunter Biden for wanting a trial. Because negotiations with the Justice Department and going before a judge who might be a Trump-appointed judge doesn't seem to be a great path. So when people say, oh, Hunter Biden, you know, he's gotten a special treatment, he has. He definitely has gotten special treatment, but I think uh, on the worst side rather than the better side. And a footnote about this. As I said at the intro, people are widely divergent in their views about whether I do too much Hunter Biden or too little. And I'll repeat what I said to a caller this weekend. On the radio show. And it's, uh, by the way, the the middle is now from two to four. It's an extra hour. 
Curtis Liu and I are from 4 to 5, and that's available on a podcast in a separate feed. I encourage you to check it out. But anyway, as I said to a caller who raised this issue, um, is that is that I am going to look for opportunities as a person who's on the left, as a person who tries to be a truth-sayer, who tries to say, look, we can be left and right, but we can agree on basic facts. I see that there are fewer and fewer issues, that there's legitimate space for concern, that it's not conspiracy theories or whatnot. And the Hunter Biden case does provide legitimate things that are that are of concern. You know, a member of the of the president's family who is who is trading on his influence. Now, I think it's widely overblown, as I've said before. But if I can find issues like that that give kind of a hat tip to both sides and say, "Listen, I'm going to try to deal with this honestly. I'm going to keep looking for them because there aren't that many opportunities." But if you are one of those people, and I got, I think. Nine or ten different emails this this after this weekend show playing. Please stop the Hunter Biden stuff. I f- I feel you. I understand what you're saying, and I will try as best I can, only to do it when there's real news or something particularly outrageous that needs to be debunked. So that's our show for the for the week. I hope you you tune in to the to the podcast next week where I'll kind of have a chance to have, have chewed on a little bit the debate. Um, we're going to talk about it on Saturday as well. If you'd like to to make a question to me, Wiener WABC at gmail.com, at Rep Wiener, uh, R-E-P-W-E-A-N-E-R on Twitter. On threads, it's Anthony D. Wiener, Facebook, Anthony D. Wiener. And I really do appreciate you tuning in. If you've liked the, this episode, please feel free to leave it some kind of review or share it in any form that you like. Um, there are some podcast platforms that let you rate it. We'd like you to do that as well. And again, you can subscribe to The Middle, the radio show that I do every Saturday. That's in a separate feed, and I encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to that as well. That's kind of like what we do here, except with callers. And, that's, and I also don't curse as much or call... Ted Cruz names as much there. I appreciate all your support, and this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>